Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to Our Shelves, a podcast where writers from the legendary feminist publishing house Barago talk about their cultural worlds. We'll be diving into these writers' bookshelves, record collections and recollections to discover what inspires them. I'm Lucy Scholes and my guest today is Natasha Walter. Welcome to Our Shelves, Natasha. It's a real pleasure to have you with us today. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be with you. Well, Natasha is a writer of both fiction and non-fiction, a journalist and a human rights activist. She's a graduate of Cambridge and Harvard and has worked as a columnist, a reviewer, a feature writer for The Guardian, Vogue and The Independent. In 2007, she founded the charity Women for Refugee Women and her books include The New Feminism and Living Dolls, The Return of Sexism. So, Natasha, I want to start a little bit today with Living Dolls, which was published back in uh, 2009, but it's back in the limelight here at Virago this year as it's been chosen as one of our five golden reads, the kind of key Virago titles that have a special significance to the decade in which they were published. So I'd love to ask you a little bit about how did you feel when you found out that your book had been picked? And could you tell me a little bit about, you know, coming to write it in the first place and how you thought about the book then and how you feel looking back on it now further down the line? Yes, lots of interesting questions. I must say, I was obviously I was delighted to hear from um, Lenny Goodings and the team at Virago that they wanted to republish Living Dolls because one thing I've been really struck by over the years, ever since it's published, that I keep meeting people women who want to talk to me about what this book has meant to them. And I've realized over the years that it's sadly, I have to say, you know, it'd be wonderful to say that its relevance has lessened, that it doesn't anymore feel so timely. But one thing I had, you know, really become so conscious of over the years is how this is a book that is that does still feel so relevant and so timely. Um, it's a book that explores the pressures, particularly on young women and girls, of the hypersexual culture that we live in and the kind of expectations of femininity that still weigh so heavily on girls and young women. And it's, you know, as a feminist, it's kind of tragic to realise that a book like that, you know, it goes on living, it goes on being relevant. And that's true for so many feminist books, Mm. of course. You know, if we think of feminists about you know, what do we read? What do we feel is relevant? It it may be the book that's published today, the book that's published last year, but sadly so often, um, because this is an unfinished revolution, that, you know, feminist insights, they do stay with us. So I was both pleased and saddened, I think, <laughs> that, you know, <laughs> that it was a book that, that Virago wanted um, to keep in print. And it's been really interesting to me, actually, just this month to see it go out there as part of these one of these five gold reads and so many people have said to me look at that cover and think about how timely that is you know we're talking this week just after the release of the huge blockbuster barbie and the the book's cover the doll on it it isn't actually a barbie a barbie light doll that seems to encapsulate you know these are the pressures on young women and how relevant that is now, when we're, you know, still talking about what does this kind of doll-like image of womanhood still mean to young women? So it's, as I say, you know, it's both, 
it's wonderful as a writer to feel that your words are living, but it's also, it's, it's a tragedy, I think, for feminism that we, it's so hard, it's so hard to truly liberate ourselves from these kind of stereotypes. And, you know, when I talk to young women, I did a, you know, a public discussion and I was signing some books for young women the other day. And what I hear from them is, if anything, the pressures often seem to be greater really? than they were back in 2010. Because, of course, I wrote Living Dolls even before social media. Mm. So this kind of hyper-self-consciousness that I think a lot of young women, that's just the world that they live in, right? You know, I feel that when I was a young woman, we were much less self-conscious. We didn't have to present ourselves visually all the time. Yes. In the way we weren't looking at ourselves all the time in the same way. So I think these pressures are much greater. Um, and, you know, you look at what's happening on Instagram, what's happening on TikTok, you know, there's a lot of debate. It's interesting how feminists can often break through and, mm. you know, create conversations and communities on these platforms. But also there's this overwhelming pressure of a very feminine and sexualized take on what it is to be a woman. Mm. I was wondering, I mean, I completely understand what you're saying. It sort of it is sort of yeah, shocking in a way and also very sad that it is still relevant. I'm wondering slightly whether you feel that these conversations are slightly more widespread or mainstream now because I remember I remember reading the book when it first came out and it felt really sort of revelatory and revolutionary that someone was putting this down on paper and some of the things in it were obviously stuff that people had maybe slightly kind of you know started talking about but this felt like a it felt like a moment whereas I feel from what I'm seeing now these conversations are out there people are still having they're having them because they have to but it's sort of interesting I'd love to know the sort of younger women you're talking to are they picking up this book and saying, yes, this is sort of, you know, feeding into conversations or are they finding new things in it, do you think? Yes, I think your point is absolutely right. And that's where I wanted to, to go next. So thank you so much. No, <laughs> that's wonderful. Because what I wanted to say was, of course, what sparked the writing of Living Dolls for me was a, a very young woman getting in touch with me, a teenage woman. I'd written a short article about um, how pornography had moved into the mainstream. You know, at that time, it was the time of lads magazines and really the beginning of that rise of, of online pornography and the more acceptability, I think, of sex work, people talking about it more. And that rhetoric around sex workers, it could be a choice, it could be empowering for young women. You know, so those were uh, phenomena that I wanted to unpick. But I'd written this article about uh, the mainstream of pornography and lads magazines. And a young woman, a very young woman, got in touch with me and said, thank you for the article. She said, I thought I was the only woman who felt like this. And that's why I was delighted to read your article. And that's what really seeded the book for me. You know, it came, It, you know, it's funny how one is part of so many conversations and sometimes there's a conversation that really sort of, you know, it goes deep. It, it really, you feel, how can that be the case? I, I need to know more about that. How could a young woman, you know, well, well after the publication of, you know, the female unit, say, or the beauty, you know, how could somebody, a young woman feel so alone in confronting that kind of expectation? on a young woman to, you know, buy into those pornified, sexualized images of femininity. And that's what sparked the book. And now that's what's changed. I don't think a young woman now could feel, I felt so alone. I thought I was the only woman who, because as I say, you know, online communities, they may pose challenges for young women, but also the great thing is we find each other we start the, you know, we have these conversations with each other. So I think that sense of loneliness, that's gone. Um, and so obviously the book doesn't fall with that kind of newness. What I think the book still holds, perhaps, you know, what I hear from other young women is it's okay to take this seriously, if that makes sense. You know, I, I think often young women are aware that this is a pressure, but we're often encouraged to treat it with a sort of irony, to, to find accommodation 
with it, um, to sort of live our lives around it. And so to be sort of self-aware about it, but nevertheless to sort of continue playing it out and playing along with it and not being that sort of humorless feminist that said that, you know, this isn't acceptable. I'm not going to, I'm not going to do it. Um, and so I think it gives them that opportunity to actually say, no, this is serious and it does have an effect on how I feel, on my um, ability to be taken seriously in the world, on how older women are perceived, on how, you know, women's experience and authority is not given the same validation as men and so on. You know, so I think that sort of just the opening out the space for women to take that seriously and say we need to make change. We're not just going to accept it and sort of try and find sort of ways of accommodating ourselves to it and sort of small areas of freedom within it but let's try and actually change this and change society that I think you know that's something that I hear from young women they still find refreshing about it but also of course in the conversations I'm having now I do hear as I have done through the years about what women feel are the limitations of the book and I think that's also really interesting Mm. we'll come on to that maybe yeah yeah it's a kind of yeah that's a it I find it's so fascinating I think looking at back at these books um that seem to be or have captured a moment so kind of so poignantly and been so important in that and then to look at what can happen over quite a short period of time sometimes and see how the conversation or the kind of landscape has changed around them and I think there's often there can be a tendency to sort of I don't know shut down and sort of not see how you need to or one needs to sort of open up and 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 consider new possibilities or new changes the idea that you're sort of willing to do that and having conversations is really exciting as well I think yes yes absolutely I think for me you know my I think there are a lot of feminists that work in sort of critiquing the world and criticizing the world so I think conversation I've always wanted above all to see change you know to try and see how that fits into how do we actually change things yeah very important and also later this month Virago is publishing your latest book Before the Light Fades which is a really extraordinary memoir about your mother's life and death and a book that I have to say moved me in a way that I don't think I've been moved before in sort of recent reading Um, I found it very I found it sort of, how do I explain this? I found it a very kind of hard book to read in many ways, but gripping at the same time, if that makes sense, because you're dealing with some really, you know, very uh, sort of, I don't know, you're dealing with obviously a very personal story in this book, but you're also dealing, you're able to sort of broaden it out into um, conversations that I think a lot of us probably are either having or need to have with sort of family members, with friends about our own lives, about our own sort of mortality, about the future of the planet. Um, I, I think it's a kind of extraordinary book. And I just want to, I know we're going to talk a little bit more later in our conversation about your mother in particular, but could you maybe give our listeners who haven't had the chance to to sort of pick it up for themselves yet, a little bit of a taste of sort of where this book, um, what this book sort of rose out from in your life? Yes. And before I do that, can I just say thank you for that response? I mean, you know, we're talking in that strange time that writers often find difficult you know you're you're sort of done with it but you're waiting to see you know how others will respond to it so I'm very touched by the way um you just spoke about it and I'm glad to hear that um that it resonated Mm, very obviously when I was thank you uh, obviously when I was writing it I wasn't um sure really how it would resonate with others it is a very personal book yeah I wrote it at a very dark and difficult time. So I wrote it in the aftermath of my mother's death. She took her own life at the end of 2017. And for a long time, I didn't write about her or I was just jotting things down. Um, and then I, when I began to write and it really began to come out, it was quite a, a dark process. I was dealing with a lot of grief, a lot of guilt um, about why she had felt that she had to die at that time um she took her life because she was she thought she had dementia and she didn't want to live with dementia um but she didn't she wasn't someone who was obviously very obviously suffering from dementia she was only seemed 
um, to those around her to be suffering from the kind of forgetfulness that, you know, many, many people experience. It didn't seem to be affecting her quality of life that severely. So it was a shock to us. Um, and as I, I wanted to write about her and I wanted to write about her because as I remembered her and as I grieved for her, I came close to her not just as this a woman who was full of fear, a woman who had decided to to die, to give up on life, but I came close to her as she was when she was a young woman. She was politically active. She met my father in the nuclear disarmament movement, and she was very brave. And I know that for a lot of people, they go, well, the ban the bomb movement in the 60s, you know, it really achieved nothing. I mean, we didn't ban the bomb. Um, but there was a bravery about the way that she and my father took part, I think, in civil disobedience at that time. They ran the risk of arrest. They ran the risk of imprisonment, although my mother was never imprisoned. But they ran the risk of long prison sentences for the actions that they took, some of them open, some of them secret. Um, they published government secrets. And I felt as I was... Thinking about her, thinking about that movement, about the legacy of the 1960s, about why civil disobedience is important, it brought me to a different place. It brought me out of a sense of political despair and inactivity and back into a place where I wanted to become active again. Um, and I started to become more hopeful again. And I wanted to share that with readers. I guess I'm apprehensive about how readers will see that because it is such a personal book. You know, my nonfiction books before that, Living Goals, which we've discussed, and The New Feminism, my first book, they were quite, you know, they're polemics. I'm making an argument. I'm having fun with ideas. I'm talking to lots of people and marshalling a sort of uh, you know, an argument that I hope will fall with people. This book is different. I went, was going on a journey, a very personal journey as well as political journey. And I hope the readers are ready to take that journey with me, I suppose is what I'm trying to say. And it won't, I think, work for everyone, obviously. But I'm hoping that for some people, they'll recognise what I'm trying to say about personal courage and about... Yeah, why it matters to try and stay politically active even when you feel a sense of despair or hopelessness and also of course it is about how older people face dementia and face you know the ending of life I'm not for a second <laughs> saying that more people should take the decision to end their lives themselves but I think yeah it's a conversation it and that we should I think be having having more openly um, with the older generation about what is a good death, you know, how do people deal with the prospect of dementia or, um, you know, other life limiting conditions? Yeah, I think for me in particular, I mean, there's so much to talk about in this book, and I know we'll be dipping in and out of it throughout the episode. But I was really struck, I think, on the sort of early. Um, in the early sections when, you know, you are talking about the immediate aftermath of her death and the kind of guilt and the upset and the grief and the sense of feeling that she had sort of gone too soon. But also, I don't know, I was, I, from the way you described her and the way that she sort of came to life in the book, I was unable to think of her as doing anything but a kind of incredible act of bravery on her part that she chose to kind of to end her life on the same terms that she lived her life I'm sure I brought plenty of my own sort of feelings into this already but it but I think you have an astonishing ability in this book to sort of show the varying ways that people might respond to this and how that the kind of natural well natural is an odd sort of sense of the word but obviously the grief that one would feel at losing and obviously that you felt at losing you know your mother this person is so important to you but also coming to understand that for her that was a decision that she made that was actually kind of freeing and an act of sort of liberty even if it the immediate aftermath it was very hard on you and other family members yes that's right and as I try and show in the book I move from one feeling to another you know, I'm somebody who quite likes certainty. <laughs> and I think I, 
you know, it was uncom it is uncomfortable for me to be experienced something that was so emotional that I couldn't really pin down mm. and really say this, this is how it is. It yeah. was a right thing to do or it was a wrong thing to do. I can't say that. It struck me in differently at different times. And I tried to capture that um you know, as I, I mean, it sort of came out naturally because mm. at different times when I sat down to write the book, I was in different, a different place. Oh, you know, yes. That, so that comes out, I think, in the book that, and I felt when I finished it, you know, is it too, um, what's the word? You know, is it, are there too many different shades in it? Should I try to iron it out as I would a polemic, as it were, you know, as I would a newspaper article, also often worked as, as a journalist and a commentator. And I, you know, but I thought about it. And obviously I worked with the wonderful Lenny Goodings at Virago and we, we left it basically as it is going on that journey. Um, because I, that's how it is. I think that's what grief is is like that's what death is like that's what life is like that you don't stay in one place when somebody makes a decision like that. I mean it felt to me incredibly it felt incredibly raw and and sort of very honest in the way that you were willing to move between well not just I mean obviously these were the emotions that you moved between but the willingness with which to kind of put that on the page and explain the kind of I suppose the 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 sort of shock factor of having to move from these different points of view in your own mind and to kind of and a sort of sense of you I was left with a sense of both you sort of changing your mind about the way that you had you viewed this particular kind of part of her life her death but also this sense of her the sense of you sort of growing as the course of the book opened up matched what we I think as readers were appreciating in, in the sense that you were being able to show the way that your mother's life opened up across the book and I loved the way that that charted that it charted both of those and by the end I felt a real I don't know I felt I felt like I'd really followed you through an intense like emotional journey that as I say was quite hard to read in parts but never anything but gripping and I couldn't sort of stop reading even as you know, there were moments when I was sort of crying as I read, but I couldn't stop myself. So. Oh, well, thank you yeah. so much for saying that. It, it does it does mean a lot to know, to think about how this might work for other people. And one of the things, as we're going back to what we were saying about living dolls, that was also important to me was to think about my mother in relation to my feminism as well, um, because I think I had grown up, I think, as so many women do, you know, defining myself almost against my mother. Do, do you know what I mean? Yes, so my yes. mother was a feminist, but I grew up and I thought I needed to make sort of my own feminism. Yeah, yeah. You need to do so it differently. I, it needs to you be... You have to do it for yourself, yeah, don't yeah, you? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And yeah, there's, so, I think that moment, I think with mothers and daughters, is that sense of almost like carving yourself out in relation yeah. to it and you have to prove your own, you know, yes. rites of passage. Exactly. And so I'd sort of pushed away, I think, any sense that I had been influenced by her for a long time. And so I, that was part of it, I think, to try and, as well, I wanted to think through, you know, her legacy in that way as well, as a mother, as a feminist, as a woman. Um, and I think that's very important. And I hope that would also resonate with other women, because I think with at the moment, as so often in feminism, there's often quite a toxic debate between the generations about who's got it wrong, who's got it right, da, 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 da. you know, and I I think it's a constant conversation that we need to be having between the generations about what works, what doesn't work, what's valuable in the legacies that we've been given that we should hold on to and be generous about and what we need to move on from. Absolutely. Um, well, I think we're going to talk a little bit more about her activism, your activism, um, as we move through, through some of our um, questions. But yeah. first up, if I may, I'd like you to yeah. tell me a little bit about a couple of books that are currently on your bedside table. You've named um, two well, one forthcoming book, which I hope will yes, be a classic. Yes, I hope that's okay. No, this is wonderful. This is wonderful. Go, tell, us, tell us about your choices, please. Yes, yeah, so I, I wanted to choose this forthcoming book because it, it, it literally, you know, it's arrived, sat on my bedside when I started reading it. So I'm in that wonderful privileged position. It's Sigrid Nunez's book, The Vulnerables, which I believe is published at the beginning of 
next year. Yes. Um, is that right? Yes. Yes. Um, and I haven't actually read it before. So she's, oh, you wow. know. So you're new So it was a real, rev- absolutely. It was a revelation to me. And um, it's such a wonderful book that reads like memoir, like fiction, you know, it's playful, but it feels very honest. And it really took me back to this, that strange time of lockdown, which I think I haven't really wanted mm. to revisit mm. in many ways, you know, feel a bit allergic in a way of, of thinking about it at all and what it did to us, um, you know, how it sent us back into our homes, but often actually enabled us to form new and different relationships with our, the places that we call home or the people around us so I found it absolutely fascinating and I loved it's it's you know deeply deeply serious and makes you think so much but it also has this wonderful playful wit and I was so struck when I went then of course to look at you know Sigrid Nunez and who she is and why on earth haven't I read her before um to see that she's 72 and she has this wonderful witty playful way of sort of writing and being in the world and I'm yeah, so that's wonderful, a revelation, and thanks so much to Virago for sending it to me. I know they've been they've been wonderful. I feel like it's the hottest proof at the moment. Everyone's kind of you oh, know talking about this. Yes. And uh, Sigrid was a uh, she was a guest, I think, on our maybe our very first season of our show was back uh, however many years oh, ago well, that I was. Have to yeah, you must. Yes, I think we yes. I think we probably did that recording during lockdown, so no doubt she was sort of working <laughs> on this book, or you know, everything was feeding into it. But she was wonderful. Yeah. And I think it yeah it's um it's a lovely but I started my own proof I must admit and I, I couldn't sort of I couldn't not uh give it a go and it's proving wonderful so far um and the other book you're reading is by um the famous Natalia Ginsberg right yes who again I have to say you know I'm coming too late um because she's being reprinted at the moment which is a wonderful revelation so I think quite a lot of people are discovering or rediscovering her now and her novels are extraordinary and that's obviously what she's going for all our yesterday's um voice in the evening what i love about the novels is you know they're absolutely brilliant about women's lives and about sort of domesticity alongside sort of political life and you know urban life really extraordinary and so moving in this way they seem to pack to me such an incredible emotional punch i mean i can't just an extraordinary writer and one I've just you know this is the wonderful thing isn't it about me you're always discovering more and it's so great to sort of you know be thick into a, a writer with such a, it's a great oeuvre and there's I feel there's so much more to read but the book I've chosen here is The Little Virtues which is actually a book of memoir and essays and reflections and it's so extraordinary a, a book so much to savour some wonderful piece of memoir in it that absolutely staggering about her experiences during the Second World War, um, you know, where she was standing up to fascism and her husband was tortured and killed. But also an extraordinary essay about how to bring up children, which is an absolute jewel. And I recommend it to any parent, you know, who doesn't want to you know, who thinks, why do I have to live by the, the sort of conventional values and how can I bring up my children to be brave and to be hopeful and to be political? So a really, really wonderful book and I recommend it so highly. Do you remember how you first was it was it sort of word of mouth or with the with the recent reprints from Daunt in this country that sort of made you pick her up yeah, in the actually, first place? I think I think literally I was just standing in a bookshop the way I do, you know, I still always, I love being in bookshops, you know, fingering books, looking, what's this, what's that? And I was just picking them up and I thought, oh, yes, Natalia Ginsburg, you know, and it just, I mean, what what an extraordinary voice. Absolutely wonderful. Yeah, she's so well. I also think, find there's something so satisfying about the fact that I'm sure they will end at some point, but they sort of keep coming. There's always like a, a yes. sort of a newly reprinted Natalia Ginsburg to kind of you know just to just for everyone to enjoy. So I long may that continue. I know, but at the moment, exactly at the moment, I feel this sort of wonderful this wealth, these riches. Yes, yes, <laughs> but it will come to an end at some point, but hopefully not not anytime soon. I'm just gonna not not checking out exactly how many more to go, as it were. Um, that's too wonderful recommendations even if um everyone has to wait a little bit longer for 
less agreement on those, but it's worth the yes, wait. Yes, I'm sorry about that. No, no, I think it's good. And <laughs> it's a little bit cheeky choosing a book that isn't yet out. But, well, you know, one there of are a couple of her joys. You know, there are to couple, be able to wait. Yeah, and also the kind of if people haven't read her yet, there's the, her most recent work, the, you know, the friend and. Um, yes, absolutely. Which I'm going to read next. There I'm you going go. Then you see. Week, so I'm taking that. Yes. So you're going yes. to enjoy that. Brilliant. Um, and next up, then, please, Natasha, could you tell me about a recent? I think you're going to tell me about a recent podcast, aren't you, that you've been listening to that's been making you think? Yes, I I don't listen to that many podcasts because I am somebody that often prefers to get you know to to read rather than listen but I've been really struck um by a couple of podcasts actually that deal with um the themes around rewilding and regeneration both in rural areas and in urban areas I know that sounds like a big leap from where we what we've been talking about (laughs) just now but I think you know at this time of climate and nature emergency I think you know it's something that everybody surely is is thinking about and wondering about how, you know how do we actually what kind of relationship should we be building with the environment particularly in this you know our very crowded island here in britain what actually works and what's wonderful um when you start reading in this area is you know first of all you start reading in this area and it's all full of despair and you're sort of reading books and weeping about everything that we've lost and then you also start reading books by people that that have hope and that are saying actually there are things that we can be doing and of course one of those voices um is Isabella Tree and her book Wilding which is about the the rewilding of the Nepa state which is absolutely extraordinary work that you know, brings such joy and such hope. And there's a beautiful podcast um, that the Net Wilding Estate actually does, which is a lovely way, you know, you feel almost like you're walking around and you're listening and you're looking and it's, you know, it's a beautiful, full of joys. How lovely. All the seasons and the bird song and so on. But of course, listening to that, living as I do, you know, in London with just a small patch of garden and most, you know, people in London don't even... So lucky to have a garden. I was also drawn to people that talk about, you know, what people can do in urban environments. And I've got involved in um, groups locally that are trying to look at how we can do more rewilding in, in urban environments, which, of course, is completely different from what rewilding looks like um, in the countryside. But there's one lovely podcast by The Green Urbanist, um, who delves into all sorts of green things about, and I'm worried about saying his name um, in case I say it wrong, but it's like Ross O'Kala, um, but the green urbanist anyway. And one of his podcasts is about urban rewilding. And I found that really interesting and really hopeful um, and, a, and a really good sort of pushback against who would say, oh, rewilding, it's just about letting things kind of, you know, run to ruin as it were just letting the the nettles and the brambles take over not at all it's about it's about managing about managing particularly in very in small areas but managing in a way that um works with the most diverse ecosystem possible sort of mimicking what you might see in a wider ecosystem so it's really lovely really hopeful and um yeah i recommend it it sounds like a, it definitely made me want to sort of listen to it. And I think it also ties in very much with, you know, so much of what you're talking about in Before the Light Fades about hope. And I love towards the end of the book where, you know, without wanting to give too much away to our listeners, but I think this is sort of important. But you, you have this wonderful line where you say that it is vital to act in the hope of better times, even if those times will always be elusive. And to me, that felt like such a sort of beacon of light in 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 dark times because I feel that I suspect like so many people I feel that often I I don't know where to even begin with thinking how to kind of move forward because everything seems so hopeless and it seems like one person can do so little and yet this sense of what do we do where do we find hope if it isn't there and this sense of you can find hope in your own very small actions even if you know that maybe they won't like I don't know I, I, I don't know could you talk maybe a little bit more about this well, because I, think I think that's I'm... absolutely right I think you put your finger on something and I'm not trying to say I have the answer obviously but it seems to me that the way to act you know in the hope of better times or in the faith of you know that better times are possible is about 
doing something on the personal level as well as doing something on that wider political level. At least that's what it has to mean for me. That's the way that I keep going. So um, as I've said, I've got involved in these small local schemes where we do, you know, rewilding planting projects in schools and public places. And that feels really important to me. And of course, people make it's important to make choices in your personal life that make sense for the times that we are now. I'm not saying that everyone can necessarily, you know, go vegan and only cycle. And so we, I think we can all do what we can in those ways. And, you know, you take one step and then one takes another step and then you take another step. But also, I think it's about acting politically in the hope of, of something better and continue to campaign. Um, so I because they're things that we can change at the personal level. They're things that can only be changed at the policy level. And so I think just trying to work a bit on both levels feels so important. And it's the only honest way, I think, to live right now. That's what it feels like to me anyway. I can only live what feels to me like an authentic or uncompromised life if I'm trying to work in both ways on the personal level and on the political level. But of course, we don't know whether these things are going to work. I mean, we're talking, it's, you know, um, very chilly and rainy here in London right now while we're talking, but we know it's the hottest summer ever across Europe. And, um, you know, we live on this planet that is in danger right now. And I think all of us, yeah, it's for all of us to to make those decisions, I think, about how we can do a bit. Mm. And I think it also struck me as well, this sense of that, you know, you can't really affect change on that larger political level unless you start making some of these small changes in one's own life. And I think, and again, you know, to go back to, to the memoir, you know, a bit towards the end where you talk about um, your uh, involvement in Extinction Rebellion and what that has meant to you. And again, I found that incredibly moving. I've read, you know, I feel like I've read quite a lot on the subject. I've read quite a lot about what, you know, the what what yes. they do. But actually, I hadn't, I don't know, I hadn't really come across a description of like what it really, the sort of emotional response to what it meant to kind of take part in one of these protests and the sense of solidarity and hope that you found in that even if at the end of the day you know it's not as if you you've got something you can't kind of finish at the end of the day and say well that's ticked off and now we don't need to do anything else but you have that feeling and and um I don't know yeah this sort of it, it made me look at activism and the kind of possibilities of what individuals can do in a slightly different way which I think for me at least was very empowering or kind of you know positive and hopeful in it in its own way Oh, I'm so glad you felt like that, because that's really what I wanted to communicate, that one of the things that was so important to me when I stepped into Extinction Rebellion's activism in 2019 was that sense of a community, you know, that I felt very alone in my sense of political despair and this feeling that there was no point, really, you know, going out onto the streets, making a noise, no one was listening, no one was... And there was a time, I think, particularly in 2019, where a lot of people did go out and it made some difference. You know, there was a political response and I think it encouraged a lot of other people. One can see, you know, there is concrete evidence for that in opinion polls. It did encourage more people to um, to say, yes, the climate emergency is important and I want to see political action on it and the politicians aren't doing enough. So I think these steps are really important. It was important to me personally, is what I'm trying to say, and I feel it was important politically. We want to build solidarity. We have to start just by stepping back in to those circles. Our shall be back in just a moment. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. 
I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Welcome back to Our Shelves. I'm Lisey Scholes and I'm talking to Natasha Walter about how small acts of sort of resilience and rebellion can make us feel like there is some hope out there. This wonderful line from your book that stays with me uh, where you write, and by taking action that looks like hope, I feel hope stirring again, which I find very moving. Um, Next up, Natasha, could you tell me a little bit about a book that has made you think about feminism in a new way? This is always a hard one to pin it down. Yeah, Yeah, there's so many. There's so many books. There's so many writers that have moulded my feminism. So I did find this question hard when I was thinking about it ahead of time. But I suppose, you know, what's changed in me and what was a real journey for me since the publication of Living Dolls, which obviously we talked about, you know, where I was then and what was important to me. Um, And I think you know, what happened to me after the publication of that book, the sort of journey that I went on, was very much about feeling challenged as a white woman in my feminism. Because I was, um, at that time, I was running a charity, Women for Refugee Women. We were working with women from all over the world that had come to this country to seek asylum. So obviously I was working with women from many different cultures. And um I feel that I was really educated, particularly by a couple of other women at the organisation, particularly Marchu Birma, who was that time the deputy director of the organisation, who really challenged me. And it sent me back to reading Black Feminists again, where, you know, the conversations that I was having with her and with the women that I was working with from African countries and Middle Eastern countries. And particularly, I went back to Bell Hooks and really thought about the challenges that she posed, you know, and not these aren't recent texts. I mean, they were texts that I'd, re- I'd read before, but I think not really taken on board. Do you know what I mean? You can read things. And if you're not ready to really listen and to change yourself, yeah, you're just reading and you just put it to one side. But I went back at that time in my life and read her more seriously. And really, I think I was prepared to be challenged more and recognised, I think, much more you know, the place of privilege that I came from. And the way I often said we, when I was talking about feminism, we women, and then really thinking about who do I mean by we? And is this, am I kind of universalizing from my own experience as a white middle class woman? And what does that mean? So I think, you know, Bell Hooks is just a perennially fascinating, challenging, brilliant writer, and well worth going back to anyone who's listening, you know, even if you read her in the 80s and feel, yeah, I kind of know, go back, listen again, (laughs) read again. So brilliant and so timely um, for now. And it is one thing, you know, when I look back at Living Dolls, I think it is a book that is dealing with the experiences of white women. And I wasn't explicit. I did make that, I said that in the book, that I knew it was a limitation, but that was where I was sticking. But I think if I was writing that book now, I would have to challenge that more in myself, you know, and I think it would be written differently. So I think that's, you know, Bell Hooks and other black feminists have definitely changed the way that I see feminism and my own feminism has changed as a result. And then, and now I'm again reading a, a writer who isn't new and I'm, you know, Sylvia Federici, the wonderful um, Italian-American feminist writer, 
who writes from an anti-capitalist viewpoint. And again, I think, you know, when you're not ready to really take these arguments on board, you know, you can read these writers and sort of move on. But I think hers is a quite overlooked tradition in feminism, a feminism that really brings the challenge to the patriarchy in terms of this isn't the system that we want, not just because there are not enough women at the top, but because we don't want such an unequal system full stop. Um, and it's yeah, she's an incredibly powerful writer. Mm. I'm also fascinated because this question, um, I mean, we get some wonderful responses, but it's always very interesting when people like you've done pick books that they have gone back to rather than mm. things that they've read first time. Not to say that one can't have a sort of, you know, a, a very important moment the first time you read a book, but it is, I think, always really interesting, particularly with mm. some of these kind of polemical texts that we might have read often you know i'm talking about myself here but in the experience in the sort of in a in a um maybe in the university experience or in that sort of academic setting and then to go back to them later on your own terms maybe as you're sort of older and wiser i think there's something to be really gained from that and that sometimes Absolutely. you just don't want to i feel like i've got a lot of books on my shelf for example that i could do that could do with being reread and probably would be very useful Absolutely. to do so yeah I think that's right. And that's one of the joys, I think, of writing is rereading, mm. you know, when you're ready to write about a subject, mm, you know, and who were, and you go back and you reread before you, you sit down to write again. But it's also, I think for me as well, it's, you know, I was, when I was working with refugee women, I was very much trying to put my feminism into practice. Right. And then I was going back to Belhoots, thinking about what I'd seen through kind of trying to live out so particularly okay. there's an essay around sisterhood I can't remember the exact word, sisterhood and solidarity um and feminism and I think you know I'd taken for sort of granted that we would be able to build solidarity as refugee women and um you know settled women that we could work towards political aims you know despite all our differences which I still believe I still think that's really important but I think I've become more aware of how difficult that is the work that needs to be done you know and so I was reading it from a different with bringing different experiences mm. to it mm. also thinking I'm just you know kind of tying it in with things like the idea we were talking about at the beginning about reading living dolls now and this kind of you know even though after only a sort of a decade decade and a half has changed but I also love the fact that these that rather than you know commissioning five new reads to kind of celebrate this particular moment Virago has gone back and decided to choose books that meant something at the time and might mean something different when people reread them now but are kind of important in their own way still and and that's incredibly useful I think for us all to return to these Abs books. Absolutely and of course one of the things about feminism is I think we often forget our history mm. you know we um want to sort of reinvent which is completely understandable we want to reinvent for a new generation we want to sort of move forward but it's really important to connect with our traditions um not just to go oh yeah you know they're wonderful stop there but to say well how do we build on that are there insights that we can now take and see how they apply to now and I'm not sure why it is but I think feminists have often been quite bad at that <laughs> you know that quite often I sort of I think probably I was a bit like that as well when I first started writing about feminism. I'm often quite surprised when I pick up the work of younger feminists and I feel you don't have to sort of trash the feminists that came before you in order to set out your stall. You know, it's you disagree and, and move forward. I think that's it's good to disagree, but I think we should be aware of what you know, our foremothers, these thinkers and activists of the past are bringing, um, that we can build on, that we can use, that, you know, are all threaded together mm. um, in this wonderful tradition that we have. Well, I think this feeds into our next question. Um, I was going to ask you uh, to tell me about a woman or a person of an unrepresented gender whom you particularly admire, and you've chosen uh, your mother for this, haven't you? I have chosen my mother um, for the reasons that we were talking about earlier on mm. um, in this conversation, that I feel it's very important to me to remember, you know, how how her generation were very bold and went forward and 
lived out their ideals. Mm. So she was somebody who really lived out what she believed um, through taking part in, in civil disobedience and protest. Uh, but also, you know, in her personal life, she was a feminist and she was, you know, a, a real feminist. She was a feminist that um, would stand up for girls and for women in her daily life and wouldn't kowtow to the sort of, you know, the stereotypes of, of femininity. One of the most moving moments in the memoir was that the scene where you're with the coroner and the coroner takes the time to he's ruling on your mother's death and he takes the time to note what a splendid woman that's his words isn't it splendid woman that your mother Ruth was and he says I can't record all of this but this is what strikes me and it really struck me in that moment I don't think this is a particularly you know I'm sure many people will see this reading the book but you know this book is a record to the life of an extraordinary woman who quietly and sort of subversively stood up and did the right thing even when she was obviously in danger and you know like you said she put herself in line of maybe going to prison she sort of did the right thing she looked after people there's a she had a life of service basically and I think it's so rare to find people who actually live out the sort of the, the convictions of their beliefs that strongly and I think what came across to me about this book is that she did this entirely and she lived you know she lived life on her own terms right up to the very end but she served people over and over and over again um she really does sound like an extraordinary woman yeah it's so lovely hearing you say that but I think also it's true isn't it that a lot of women do live quite quietly lives that are greatly you know um that are very admirable that are in service to others and don't necessarily seek the limelight or um, you know, seek to tell their stories. It, I feel I'm sort of moving towards a phrase of um, George Eliot's that I'm not sure that I'll get quite right about those little lives that, you know, yes. um, of, you know, the end of Middlemarch. Yes, um, yes. That many people live those kind of lives that benefit other people, even if they're not so celebrated or so written about. And yes, I, that was something that I did, that I wanted to, to capture that many people meeting Ruth, my mother, would have, you know, found her quite an ordinary woman in, in many ways she was. And but there is, you know, a great strength often in not trying to sort of be the leader, be the big voice, you know, the one who's trying to sort of take up the oxygen or or take the microphone. And I think often feminism, you know, hasn't hasn't really celebrated that recently. I think yeah. often our feminism has become one that over-celebrates individualism mm. and sees empowerment as very much, you know, this idea of an individual celebrated successful life about sort of building your brand and getting lots of followers and, you know, just yeah. being very, very successful. And in fact, often, a you know, a great life doesn't look, that much like that um and I think that's I think that's kind of important to recognize and if we're thinking about how to build social movements and how to build solidarity I think celebrating the way that people are interdependent as well as independent is really important but obviously when I was writing the book about my mother I wasn't necessarily thinking about it in those terms until I yeah. reached the end. You know, I wanted to explore her life. I wanted to explore what was valuable. It was a book born of sort of emotion and love. And then towards the end, I sort of realised more, I think, the political significance of what I'm writing about, if that makes sense. You know, that it's that I'm taking from the personal. Yeah, I think I think very much so. And I think yeah, maybe that was also why these moments and this moment in particular really struck me because the book is not set up in a way there would be another way to write this book which I think would be to set out from the start to be very kind of clear about my mother the hero the unsung heroine or something like that which is not to say that would be the because she certainly sounds like she was but that would be to my mind a very different book and I think the way that it crept up on me as I was reading about 
And I think that's also what comes through in that particular way that the coroner, you know, when he mentions that, he says, I, he, I can't actually record this. This is something that I can't put down on the kind of the official record. But this is a life, nevertheless, that has been lived in a sort of, you know, it's been an admirable, a kind of splendid life. And I think that the book does a particular service to that that is, and like you say, a sort of celebration of the extraordinary in the ordinary. And there are many women doing that. There are many people doing that. And those sort of lives, I think it's good for us all to note those lives and to recognise them and acknowledge them in, in, a, in sort of a way like this. Yes, thank you. That's that's exactly what I that's exactly what I was hoping. I think, well, you know, by the time I got to the end and I realised what sort of book I was writing, that people would respond to in that. And I feel, you know, when I'm in these kind of circles that I'm often working in now, activist circles or in the sort of, you know, the volunteer groups that are doing the sort of, you know, making community gardens and this kind of thing, I feel I meet other women and and men, but often, very, very often women, um, like my mother, who are getting on with doing what they feel is right, right for their community, right for society, right for their family, and they're not seeking sort of advancement or fame for doing it. Um, and they'd often sort of hesitate to, you know, they would find recognition a bit uncomfortable, but it's, it's definitely there, you know, that courage, that integrity, that sort of authenticity. I feel we meet it often um, in those sort of circles and it, often goes unrecognized. Yeah, we meet it often, but we celebrate it rarely. And so it's exactly. nice to turn yes. the tables once in a while. Um, well, finally today, Natasha, to draw our conversation to a close, um, as we mentioned at the top of the episode, Living Dolls is one of Virago's five gold reads. But what is your golden apple, the Virago book that you recommend to all and sundry? I found this question really hard as well because <laughs> we do like to there's make them all so <laughs> many and obviously that my initial temptation was to go back you know to the modern classics and to choose a book that is as a you know one of the classics or so something like I was thinking I would bring to you Dorothy Richardson's Pilgrimage which was a very important book to me I wrote a, you know my undergraduate dissertation on it comparing oh, wow. Dorothy Richardson to James Joyce and I wouldn't have done that if it hadn't have been for the Virago modern classics that sat on my shelves you know the broken, very broken spines of those books. Um, <laughs> but, you know, or Rosamund Lehman, a, a writer that I grew up with, I absolutely love. But in the end, I decided I wanted to choose something really, really recent. So I'm choosing a book that's actually published this year by a great writer who also happens to be a great friend of mine, Linda Grant, and her latest novel, which is The Story of the Forest. And I feel it's such a wonderful book itself, but also... You know, I've read all of Linda's novels right from the start, The Cast Iron Shore, which is a wonderful, and I think quite, you know, quite overlooked novel, absolutely wonderful. And uh, When I Lived in Modern Times, of course, which won the Women's Prize, the Orange Prize, as it was then. And what she always does and what the story of the forest does so brilliantly really tells the story of the 20th century um, early 21st century through the lives of women and these women are usually always Jewish women often migrant women um, women struggling to sort of find their feet and find their voice in changing times as, as she said in that novel you know in modern times and I just feel the story of the forest feels to me like the culmination um, though I hope obviously there'll be more but the culmination of that um wonderful writing career of exploring those women's lives and I can't really think of any other writer that does that any other British writer that really has opened up for us those stories of um, Jewish women um, moving through Europe and into the States and being politically active in that way as well as trying to live a full personal and sexual life I just think it's wonderful and the story of the forest isn't a very long book but it feels epic. It's mm. extraordinary. You know, you follow this family um, through all sorts of trials and tribulations and migrations and, you know, ups and downs, um, loves and hates. And it's a really, really wonderful read. And I, it is a classic, I think, you know, it was just published this year. So I, I highly recommend it. 
That's a wonderful, wonderful recommendation. I'm so glad um, that you chose that book. Not, you know, uh, Grant's an extraordinary writer, and um, I think she was on the first season of this show as well back in the day. So I'm sure we'll have her back soon at some point. And yes, everyone go out and read Story of the Forest if you haven't already. Um, thank you so much, Natasha. I very had a wonderful time talking to you today. Thank you so much for coming on to our shelves. Thank you so much for having me and thank you so much for your response to Before the Light Fades. Well, thank you everyone else for listening. Our Shells is brought to you by the team at Virago Press and special thanks to today's guest, Natasha Walter. And tune in next time for more conversation about books, feminism and culture. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.